0: And if you have your copy of God's word, let me invite you to open up to Nehemiah chapter nine <clears throat> Nehemiah chapter nine, and we'll continue walking through uh, Nehemiah. You'll see that in the chairback Bibles in front of you, that's on page 404, as the screen indicates. This morning, the title of the message is "Confession of Sin and the Mercy of God." It's a heavy title. Confession of sin and the mercy of God. That's what we see happening in the lives of the children of Israel here in Nehemiah chapter 9. But before we read the text, let us pray. Father, we know that you are a merciful God. You are faithful and you are just. And just as the children of Israel long for deliverance from their bondage. This morning, Lord, I pray that you would make it our desire, the desire of our hearts, that we would long for deliverance from bondage in our own lives. So I pray, God, that you would have your way with us this morning. Speak into our lives. Challenge our sinful ways. Challenge our unrepentant hearts. Move us out of our complacency. And move us out of apathy. And move us into your glorious will. So that we might have hearts that are affectionate for you. So that we might live lives that are powerful witnesses and testimonies. For the glory of your name. And so now Lord I pray. That the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart. Would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord my rock and my redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Nehemiah chapter 9 is a a thick chapter, if I could use that word as a definition, but it's a tremendous chapter. It's a chapter that speaks of God's history with his people Israel. And so I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, and I want to invite you to follow along as I read. Now, the 24th day of this month the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of the day they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Kanani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah, said Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord. You alone, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and you gave him the name Abraham, and you found his heart faithful before you. You made a covenant with him to give his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. Skip down to verse 21. Forty years you sustained them, speaking of the children of Israel, in the wilderness. And they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell, and you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Shehan, King of Heshbon, and the land of Ag, King of Bashan. Listen to what the Lord did. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and you brought them into the land and you had you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities, verse 25, and a rich land and took possession of houses full of All good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times when they turned and cried to you, or and many times you delivered them according to your mercies, and you warned them in order to turn back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously, and they did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them, and they Turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Listen to verse 31. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great and mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people. Since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day, yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves." And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. As we approach Nehemiah chapter 9. It's strange to note the order of events that have taken place. In chapter 8 we see that. The people of God were gathered together. They read from the book of the law. And in chapter 8, verse 9, it says, uh, it says that the people heard the words of the law and they began to weep and to mourn. And after the people heard the word of law and they they began to weep and to mourn, the the priests and uh, Ezra, the priest and and the Levites and Nehemiah all said, this is a day that's holy to the Lord. Don't mourn, don't weep. So the people understood the words that the priest had spoken to them in chapter 8 and they went away and they feasted before the Lord and they celebrated the feast. That was chapter 8. But in chapter 9, chapter 9 begins after they've completed the festivals. They completed the festival of trumpets and and they celebrated the day of atonement and the feast of booths. And they had done all of this. And then we see God's people now in chapter nine, repenting of sin. They're remembering God's faithfulness as he's righteously judged their sin. And then they are crying out to God for mercy as they recommit their lives to living obediently and following him. Now, if we're honest this morning before the Lord. I think Israel's history and their story isn't really all that different from our story, from our history. Think about it. They they experience God's blessing and goodness. And then in the midst of goodness, they sin and they rebel against God. And then God shows them mercy and and he shows them compassion You know, this is the story, really, of our own struggle. It's our struggle of temptation and and sin. The problem that Israel has is the same problem that we have. Sin runs deep, and we need one who can deliver us from bondage. To sin. We need one who can deliver us from this bondage to sin. And we need one in the person of Christ. A savior. We need God's son Jesus Christ. To save us and to deliver us. And so this morning I want us to see that the church. As the church we must not presume upon God's grace. But we must confess our sins. And cast our hope upon the mercies of God. And so we. As the church, as God's people, as believers, disciples of Christ, we must heed the gracious call of the gospel by responding to God with with lives of faithfulness. We are to faithfully submit our lives to the instruction of God's word and then to live guided by the Holy Spirit's leading. So first, I want us to notice a few things about verses 1 through 5. What happens when God's people gather in an assembly? What happens when they come together? I want to give you four quick observations about their assembly. In verse 1, we see, first off, that they have dressed for the occasion. Now, what does that mean? That they've dressed for the occasion. We, we kind of do this sometimes ourselves, right? When we go to a, a wedding, we're, we're dressing up festively, right? Or when we go to a funeral, we... We dress more mournfully. The people of God here are dressing for the occasion, but what's the occasion? They're coming together to worship God. You wouldn't think that would be a mournful time. But notice what they're doing they're assembling together with fasting and sackcloth and with earth on their heads. In other words, this discipline of fasting that they are carrying out, it's a discipline of depriving their body of food so that physically they are calling out and crying out to God. They are physically feeling pain of not eating. And I would submit to you that after 22 days of feasting, they are going to feel the pain of not having food so they're doing this to to prompt themselves in every way, every emotion, every feeling. They want it to be directed toward God. They want to cry out to God. And so they're putting their flesh under submission and crying out to God in confession of their sins. But secondly, notice what they're wearing. They're wearing sackcloth. They're wearing sackcloth. You know what this shows? This shows that they weren't just speaking words. They were going through the motion, through the action. Of mourning and weeping and fasting before God. They were grieved over their sin and it showed in the clothes that they even wore. And then it says, with earth on their heads. That's kind of a strange phrase, isn't it? But putting earth on their head represented something tremendous. It represented their own frailty and their acknowledgement of their frailty before God. God. And in doing so, they are crying out saying, God, we are feeble and we are in need of you. We need you. So get the picture here. As the people are assembling together to worship God, they are going before God with mourning and fasting. They're weeping and they're crying out to God with earth on their head saying, we need you, God. We need you to be here. We need you to show up. We need you in our midst. And so as they gather, this is what they're gathering for. Many of you can identify with this type of a, of a heartfelt, sacrificial worship before the Lord because you've been on a personal journey through the season of Lent. Maybe you've given up something for Lent. Possibly you've given up media or, or maybe a particular food or a particular drink, maybe coffee. And in doing that, you've been battling against the flesh. You've been trying to exercise a greater dependency on God. And you've done this for the purpose of experiencing greater solidarity with Christ on his journey to the cross. You do this to remind yourself of the great suffering and commitment that God's saving work on the cross through Christ has accomplished. And in doing so, you've probably considered the sinful patterns in your life and confessed those patterns before the Lord. But I'm, I'm also aware that not everyone in here has done such a thing during this Lenten season. And so I want to challenge us and ask us this morning, as we come before the Lord, are there areas in our lives... Where we need to be submissive. We need to submit our lives to God. Certainly there are areas. But are there sinful patterns? Are there sinful things happening in our lives. That we need to turn over. And submit to God. That we need to repent of. And trust God with. You see this was the way. That the children of Israel were crying out to God. In recognition of their own culpability and sin. And this is our need today. Today. We don't necessarily dress for the occasion, do we? But but I wonder how many of us this morning, if truth be known in the internal seat of our heart, the conviction of our hearts before the Lord, if if that were on display through what we were wearing, what would it look like? Have we come today with expectant hearts ready, desiring, with such a tenacity, saying we we want to hear you, God. We want to to meet with you. We, We need you. So they dressed for the occasion, but secondly, notice this second observation. They, they separated themselves from foreigners. We see it in verse 2. The Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. This isn't some elitist, uh, elitist program for the Israelites. It's not some action of elitism that they take. It was a commitment for them of covenant faithfulness to God. They wanted to be faithful to the Lord their God. They understood something about being God's chosen people. They understood what the law, because they've been reading the law, they understood what Leviticus 20, 26 says, You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. Listen, their loyalty was to remain true to Yahweh, their covenant God. And so they stood They confessed their sins. They confessed the sins of their fathers. And they were serious about being a holy people set apart to God. In the last several weeks, we've made application about us being a holy people set apart to God. Being distinct and being different from the world. So I want to challenge you to think about that this morning. How are we separate from the world in that sense? How are we set apart for God? And what's the reason that we as children of God would be set apart? How are we displaying God's glory through our lives? The third observation I want to make is that consistent corporate reading of God's word bears fruit. Look at that in verse 3. They stood up in the place where... And read from the book of the law, the Lord their God, for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. A six-hour worship service, as we saw last week. Six-hour worship service. What's the first thought that comes in our mind? <laughs> Man, that's long, right? Am I going to sit here for five more hours? You know, as I, as I read that, you know what I read? I read that they were hungry for God. They wanted God. They were there. For three hours they read and explained and understood God's word. And then that prompted them to go before the Lord for another three hours of praise and worship where they were praising him. They weren't worried about the clock. When we go to Africa, it's funny. We have to teach what they call Mazungu time. We have to teach uh, keeping a a time. They weren't worried about about being on the clock. They were just there to worship God. And here's why I say consistent corporate reading of God's word bears fruit. Look at chapter 8, verse 18. Look at what the first line says. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. Right? It was consistent. Church, when we consistently submit ourselves and put ourselves under the teaching of God's Word, the corporate reading of God's Word, when we come together and study of God's Word, here's what happens. It creates a a hunger within the people of God. Let me ask you, have you ever been at a place in your spiritual journey with Christ where your hunger for God's Word created a deep awareness of your own sin? That's what's happening for these people. Their hunger for God has created a deep awareness of their own sin, and because of it, they are confessing before the Lord. They are trusting God with their sin, and they're crying out to God in brokenness. They were desperate for God to show up and to do a work. The fourth observation I want to make quickly is the Levites lead God's people in worship they once again began leading God's people in worship it says in verse 4 that they cried out with a loud voice this word for cried out here in verse 4 it's the word of a cry of bitterness it's a cry of distress God's word had done a work in their lives from the top down, so to speak. And all of the people are gathered, from the priests and the Levites to all of God's people. They are gathered, and with one accord, they are mourning, they are weeping, and they are fasting over their sin. They are crying out to God. Church, I want, this to, I want that to, to be what's describing of, of our worship in that sense. That we are that desperate for the Lord that we are crying out to God for Him to do a work, to do a work that only He can do, to do a work that brings Him glory and brings Him praise. But there's this problem for the people of Israel. And the problem is a huge problem. It's the problem of a history of sin. It's what we read about through the text. In verses 6-31, through there is just this recounting of the history of Israel as a nation in their relationship with God. And so the question is, how do you deal with a history of failure? How do you deal with a history of sin? And so I think what we what we read here is we read God's people offering up a prayer of praise and penitence. And so the second point I want us to see this morning is we we need to learn a prayerful lesson from God's people. A prayerful lesson from God's people in verses 6 through 31. In this prayer, we see a pattern where they remember God's blessing and their goodness toward them, and then they recount the accumulation of their failures and sin, and then they remember God's great mercies and how he showers his great mercy upon them. You know, I'm taken back when I think about how much garbage accumulates around our house on a weekly basis. Maybe I should say accumulates in our garbage can, all right, on a weekly basis. I mean, at least two times a week, well, two times a week, we've got a full bin that we're rolling down to the street and it's being taken and brought somewhere else to the, to the landfill. But you know, I'd hate to think about the massive size of the garbage pile that would be mine, that I would accumulate through through my entire life. What about you? You've probably never thought about that before. I know I'm kind of strange. But what about thinking in regard to your transgression and sin? How big would that pile be? How big would that mountain be? Just imagine for a moment the size of that mountain. I can speak to you about mine. I know the mountain that I have, it would be huge. The sin mountain, right? The boulder, it would be huge. It would be unbearable. There'd be no way that I could pick it up. The sins of my past are too numerous. But imagine for another moment the the weight of, of that boulder taken from that mountain of sin and it's just suspended over your head and everywhere you go, you can't get out from under it. The weight of that would... Smash you and squeeze the the life out of you. And I think what we need to see here is this is the history of our failure to live up to God's holy standard. This is the scope and the weight of the history of our sin. And to understand God's mercy toward us in Christ, we must see the massiveness of our sin, the mountain of our sin before God. This is the weight of the people of Israel. This is the weight that they felt under the history of failure in their sin. I don't want to encourage you this morning that those who are in Christ, those who are professing faith in Christ, there's good news. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, what? Christ died for us. Colossians 2.14, as Dr. David referred to earlier, tells us of God's mercy towards us that Jesus took our sin debt, canceled it, having nailed it to the cross. He put it away. So how do they, how do we deal with a history of failure and sin? I think the first thing we see in verses 5 and 6 is they praise God for who he is and the work that he has done. Praise begins with a right understanding of who God is. He is the everlasting God. He's without beginning and without end. He says it there in verse 5. Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Verse 6, they confess, you alone are God. Quoting from Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, is, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is one God. He is not many. There are not other gods. You know, the, the language in the Hebrew text is so precise there. The word for, the, for one is ahad. The word for another is achar. And there's only a very small difference. Very small. In the Hebrew language between the D and the R on the end of that word. It's just a little stroke at the end of the letter that makes it say he is One. Let me tell you how certain and how sure and how awesome God is that he governs even over his word so that even to the smallest degree, he is faithful to say that he is one. And his people are declaring this. You, God, you are one. There is no other. You are the creator. Going back to Genesis 1 and 2. Listen, God's word has taken root in their lives and they are praising God because of it. So they praise God for who He is and the work that He has done. Let me ask you this morning, church, does this type of praise, does this type of understanding of who God is captivate our hearts, your heart this morning as you come to praise Him? Even as we praise Him throughout this morning, has this been your understanding of who you are praising, the great and glorious and awesome and worthy of fear, this God who is worthy of all of our praise? There is no other His people are praising him. Not only do they praise them, though, for who he is. They praise him for his faithfulness. Listen, to initiate a covenant with his servant, Abram, who becomes Abraham. In verses 7 and 8, it was God who chose Abraham. He says, you are the Lord, the God who chose Abram. And you brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. You even gave him a new name, meaning the father of many nations. You made a covenant with him. You see, it was God who changed his name. It was God the father who called him out, who, who blessed him, and who even initiated this covenant with him. It was God who called Abraham to faith and found his heart faithful. It was God who, who made this covenant with his people and fulfills His covenant in the person and the work of Christ in the New Testament to satisfy the demands of the law. It was God who made the covenant to bring the children of Israel into the promised land of rest. And it's God who faithfully keeps His covenant to give all who come to faith in Christ rest in Christ. I want you to see that connection. Jesus himself says in Matthew's gospel, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you what? I will give you rest. He desires to give his people rest. You know what this tells us about God? It tells us that he is a righteous God. It tells us that he's faithful, that he can be trusted. It tells us that he fulfills what he has promised. We praise God for his faithfulness. We praise him because he is faithful to us and because we've been saved through this great fulfillment of his covenant. We praise Him because it's through the greater blood of Christ that the covenant, that Christ our Savior has made a way for us to come into God's presence. It's His blood that ransoms our lives from eternal destruction and condemnation. It is the blood of Christ which does this. And this is the sacrifice that Christ has made giving His own life that He might create a new covenant for you and me. So we stand with Paul in Romans 8.1. We declare, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We have been set free from bondage to sin, brothers and sisters. So this morning, listen, believer, are you praising God for his faithfulness to you through Christ's shed blood? It's Christ's spilt blood which covers your sin and allows you and me to enter into God's presence. I also want you to see that in praising God, in praising God, they remember God's past deliverance and sustenance and great mercies toward them. This is important, for in remembering God's greatness toward us, we're able to praise Him. They remember how God delivered them from bondage to Egypt. In verses 9 through 11, he recounts that. You, You saw the afflictions of our fathers in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and his servants. He did all of these great works, leading his people out of Egypt, out of bondage. And in verse 10, they say this. They say, it's all about you, God. Look at what he says. And you made a name for yourself. As it is to this day. In fact, the whole section is about God all the way through verse really all the way through the end of the chapter, chapter six, uh, verse 38, chapter nine, verse 38 here. It's all about God. At least 18 times in verses nine through 21, they speak of what God has done by using the second person singular pronoun you 18 times there from from nine to twenty one. And from verse 6 through 38, I counted 72 occurrences where in this prayer, praising God, they're saying, you are your, they are giving all glory and all praise. 72 times from verse 6 through verse 38, they're praising God. You know what that says? It says that God is acting on behalf of his people. They know that they can come to God, they can cry out to God, they can call to God. They know that God is for his people. Listen, church, God is for his people. He always has been and he always will be. Don't doubt it. Write it down, believe it, trust in it, and live your life by it. He is for you. He is not against you, believer. Have you ever met a Christian who always seems to be downtrodden and living in the guilt of sin? They never seem to be joyful. They're never seemingly excited about what God is doing in their life and teaching them. It's as if they're walking around waiting, watching for God to strike them with a lightning bolt. Have you ever seen that type of a person? I want you to know that Israel's history tells us a different story. Yeah, they were judged for their sin. They had to suffer the consequences of their sin. But we see a different story about God and his relationship with his people. We see his people coming before him, repentant and trusting him. In verses 12 through 21, they continue in prayer to recount the, the faithfulness of God as he leads them through the wilderness to the promised land. He led them look in a pillar of cloud by day and what? A pillar of fire by night, verse 12. On Mount Sinai, he came down and gave them the good statutes and commandments to live so that they would know how to live lives that were pleasing to God. He gave them a Sabbath day's rest in verse 14. They praise him for giving, him, uh, giving them bread and, and satisfying their hunger and giving them water from the rock to drink, satisfying their physical needs in verse 15. And then we get to verses 16 and 17. And it says, they acted presumptuously or arrogantly. This is the same word that's used to describe the Egyptians acting arrogantly toward the Israelites. Instead, now the Israelites are acting arrogantly, presumptuously toward the Lord their God. But notice what they said. We acted presumptuously and arrogantly. We disobeyed your command. They had sinned against God. But then they say, you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. Listen, we need to hear that this morning. God doesn't forsake us. He doesn't forsake his people. You know that God desires to restore you to himself, believer. You know that in your sin, He is ready and waiting for you to confess your sin. John 1 9 says he is faithful and just if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is there sin that you're harboring in your life? Confess it before the Lord. Ask him to change your heart. Ask him to give you that new heart. Verse 18 shows us Moses comes down from the mountain and they're worshiping a golden calf wanting to be in bondage again in Egypt. And then in verse 20 he says you gave your good spirit to instruct them. For 40 years in the wilderness, God sustained his people. And so the Israelites are remembering God's blessing. And for each time they've sinned throughout their history as a people, they're remembering also God's mercy toward them. Let me ask you this morning, church. How has God delivered you? What are those ways in which God has brought salvation into your life and delivered you and how is he sustaining you and how have you experienced the extended mercy of God in your life where where he's been perpetually faithful and perpetually patient with you over and over and over again our God is merciful in praising God I want you to see that they remember his generosity his justice and his mercy though as well in verses 22 through 31 in verses 22 through 25 he, he gave them the land. He brings them into the land of promise. Look at verse 25. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. This is a sign of prosperity and blessing upon the people. It looks back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 10. To see the warning that when they get in the land, be careful they don't forsake God. But they, they, have, they, have, grown, uh, they have grown in the land. They have enjoyed the, the rich bounty and blessings of the land. And then we read that they forsake God in the midst of the land. They turn away from serving God. In fact, verses 27 and 28 highlight the period of judges. Which we see sin, wrath... The wrath of God poured out against sin. The oppression of the people. The people come and repent and then God delivers them. And over and over we see that cycle repeat itself. And then in verses 29 through 31, they once again experience God's mercy. Listen to verse 31. Verse 31 says, Nevertheless, in your great mercies you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. God is gracious and merciful towards his people. Over and over we see this theme throughout. God's grace and mercy are not to be presumed upon. But his word. His word teaches us that we can come to him. We must know God's grace and mercy toward his children is generous as he as he says here. He continuously pours out his mercy and his grace toward his children In fact, I would also offer Romans 8 that we have the promise from his word that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. But verse 30 should alarm us. It should sound an alarm in our minds when we read it. Verse 30 says, many years you bore with them and and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hands of the people of the lands. There is a time where God disciplines His children for continuing in sinful rebellion. And so James 17 says, He who knows the good he ought to do and does not do it sins. It's sin to him. It's sin to her. And so church, don't presume upon the grace of God. Let us confess our sin before the Lord. Let us remember His great goodness. Let us remember His generosity Recognize his justice and remember his mercy. And so is there a particular sin in your life that's weighing you down? Give it to God. Jesus has paid your sin debt. Trust him for strength and deliverance. Are you remembering God's generosity? Knowing that he is faithful. Knowing that he's poured out his wrath for your sin on Christ. He has extended mercy to each of us. Finally, this morning, I want you to see that God, God's people didn't stop with acknowledging the sin of their fathers. They also acknowledged their own sin. They made their voice heard through confession of sin and longing for deliverance. In verses 32 through 35, they made the painful admission of their own sin. And they cry out to God, let not all the hardship that's come upon us seem little to you. They owned their wrong and they confessed that God was just in their sentence. In verse 33, he says, Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. In all of this, they're coming to God in prayer and confessing their sin before the Lord. Hang with me here. I want you to see the bedrock of their prayer, the foundation of, The foundation of what they are praying and living out. Verses 36 and 37 offer us kind of the bedrock of their prayer. And in verses 36 and 37, they're saying, Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy. We're slaves there. We're we're in great distress. In other words, they're saying, we are in great bondage. We're slaves in the land of promise. And they're calling out to God. They're saying, deliver us and restore to us the promise of our inheritance. They're saying, hear the cry of our distress once again and be merciful to your people once again. That's their cry to the Lord. They're crying out to God. They're saying, do it again. Do it one more time. Like so many times before, Lord. Do it one more time. This time, things will be different. We've learned our lesson. We're committed to you. We'll quit sinning. We'll, quit. we'll walk faithfully after you. Church, so don't miss this. In spite of all their genuine repentant prayer and worship. In chapter 9. Chapter 10 shows they form a new covenant. In chapter 13 we see God's people breaking the newly formed covenant that they had made with God. We learn from Israel an important lesson. We learn that as men and women as human beings we cannot live lives in sinless perfection before a holy God. We sin over and over and over again. The truth is the lessons we learn they're hard and they're painful. And the truth is, we can't bear the weight of our sin. The truth is, we need someone to bear the weight of sin for us. God knew His people would sin again and turn away from Him. And He knows that you and I will walk out of here and we will sin. God knows that. It doesn't change the genuineness and the repentant, heartfelt worship that God's people come before Him with, though. And so you know what God did? God did the unthinkable. In the final act of mercy, He sent Jesus Christ, His Son, to die on the cross. He sent Christ to bear the weight of not just my mountain of sin, but your mountain of sin. All of our mountains of sin. He sent Him. And the sin that was due to crush you and to crush me has now crushed Christ. And so if you look to Jesus, if you'll confess your sins and confess God as creator and praise his name and surrender your life to him, you can know this mercy from God. You too can eternally be saved and have the hope and the promise of eternal life. He saves us from condemnation, from the wrath of God. Will you trust him today? Will you look to Christ Will you confess your sin before him? Will you confess your great need for him? Will you cry out in dependence to him? I don't often give an invitation, but this morning, if, if the Lord is prompting your heart to surrender your life to Christ, to confess him as Lord, if that's something that the Holy Spirit is working in your life on right now, I want you to know that I'll, I'll be down front here And I would love to talk to you about what that means and pray with you about how you surrender your life to Christ. But maybe this morning for you, maybe you need to take... Take time right where you are, and, and while the song is playing, you're not singing, you're, you're confessing with your lips what God is convicting in your heart. Or maybe you want to come and you want to kneel down and intercede on behalf of someone else. I don't know what God is leading you to do this morning, but let me encourage you this morning to make commitment before the Lord, to respond to God's word in the way that he's prompting in your heart. Do not, do not silence the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. We've prayed this morning asking for God to do a work in our hearts and our lives. And he is. And so you respond as the Lord leads. I'm going to close in prayer. And I want to invite you after I pray to stand and respond as the Lord leads you. Let us pray. Father, this morning. We are overwhelmed by the mercy that you give us. In spite of our own sin. We see the history from your people, Israel. And Lord, as they needed you to deliver them from bondage and sin, so we too need you. And we cry out in distress this morning, deliver us. Thank you for salvation through Christ, our Savior. Give us strength today to walk by your spirit, to follow you as you lead. For it's in Christ's name we pray and respond. Amen.